Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End, although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. My focus today is on serial killer Ed Kemper, a.k.a. the co-ed killer. Perhaps you've heard of him? Born December 18, 1948, Edmund Emil Kemper III was born in Burbank, California, to a very disturbing upbringing. He was the middle child born to Clarnell and Edmund Kemper II. Ed's father was a World War II veteran. After the war, he tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California, where he then became an electrician. Clarnell would make it a point to let him know how degrading his profession was. Ed's father would say the suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her, and that she affected him more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. Weighing 13 pounds at birth, Ed was about a head taller than all his classmates at the early age of four. So this goes without saying he was growing up to be a big guy, reaching six feet four inches tall at age 15. At the early age of 10, he started to display antisocial behavior by being cruel to animals. This is gruesome. He buried the family cat alive, let it die, dug it up, and proceeded to decapitate this poor animal and mounted its head on a spike. He never owned up to this cruelty, but later admitted that he derived such pleasure by lying to his family about the cat's death. At the age of 13... He would again kill a family cat out of jealousy. He believed the cat favored his sister over him. He kept pieces of it in his closet until his mother found them. Ed had a very dark perception of life. He would perform odd rituals with his sister's dolls. On occasion, he ritualistically removed the doll's head and hands. He would also have his younger sister tie him up and play electric chair or gas chamber. She would flip an imaginary switch, and he would writhe on the floor as if in pain by electric shock or gas inhalation. He also suffered two near-death experiences. Once, his older sister tried to push him in front of a train. The second time, she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a pool, where, in fact, he almost drowned. Ed had a close relationship with his father until his parents divorced, and he had to go live with his abusive mother in Helena, Montana. He and his mother had an extremely dysfunctional relationship. She was neurotic, domineering, alcoholic, who would frequently belittle, humiliate, and abuse him. She often made him sleep in the basement, fearing that he would hurt his sisters in some way. His mother would taunt him for being larger than the others, shamed him for being weird. She refused to show her son any affection whatsoever. Her reason? That it may turn him gay. She also let him know that since he was just like his father, that no woman would ever love him. It was speculated that she may have suffered from borderline personality disorder. This was, however, never diagnosed. 
At the age of 14, Ed ran away from home in the hopes to be reconciled with his father in California. When he found him, his father had remarried and had a stepson. He stayed with his father for a very short time before his father sent him to live with his paternal grandparents. They lived in an unincorporated ranch in the mountains in California. He was miserable. He describes his grandfather as senile, but that they had bonded over hunting. He describes his grandmother as constantly emasculating both him and his grandfather. This, of course, would remind him of the abuse he suffered from his mother. At the age of 15, August 27, 1964, Ed was sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother and they proceeded to have an argument. He then gets enraged, storms off and grabs the rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. He takes the rifle back to the kitchen and shoots his grandmother in the head, then firing twice more into the back. Some reports also state that she may have suffered some stab wounds post-mortem with a kitchen knife. His grandfather, who wasn't home at the time, when he had returned for fear that his grandfather would be disappointed, shot his grandfather in the face in the driveway. Not knowing what to do next, he calls his mother. She tells him to call the police. He does and waits to be taken into custody. He would later say that killing his grandparents represented the rejection of both his parents. At this stage, he would be diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic and sent to a psychiatric hospital, a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts. This is when psychiatrists and social workers would disagree with court-appointed psychiatric diagnosis. Their reports state that he didn't have any flights of ideas, not interference of thought, nor expression of delusions or hallucinations and no evidence of bizarre thinking. They observed him to be intelligent and introspective. His IQ was high, around 138. A new diagnosis was less severe as a personality trait disturbance, a passive-aggressive type. Later on, his IQ would be tested again. The results were even higher at the second time, around 145. He proves to his psychiatrist that he is a model prisoner, and he is trained to administer psychiatric tests on other prisoners. Um what? He was said to be a good worker and not your typical sociopath. I would say yes, he was exactly that. He took pride in his work and even became a member in a leadership training and civic organization. He helped develop new tests and new scales in adult personality psychopathology. On December 18, 1969, its 21st birthday, he was released on parole from the hospital against the recommendation of his psychiatrist. He was released into his mother's custody, who by then had remarried and divorced. She had also moved back to California, where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Ed had convinced his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated. On November 29, 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged. One of the last notes from his probation psychiatrist read, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we are dealing with a well-adjusted young man who has initiative, intelligence, and was free from any psychiatric illnesses. 
It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years in treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be a danger to himself or any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. While staying with his mother, he attended community college as part of his parole requirements. He hoped to become a police officer. Due to his size, this would not happen. Now standing six feet nine inches tall, he earned his nickname Big Ed. He maintained his relationships with Santa Cruz police officers despite being rejected by the force. He would hang out at a popular bar where law enforcement officers were known to hang out. Ed worked odd jobs until getting a job with the California Department of Transportation. His relationship with his mother would remain toxic. Frequently, the neighbors would report hearing very loud verbal arguments between Ed and his mother. Ed would say later that they argued over the stupidest simple things. To me, this sounds like it didn't matter what he did. She didn't seem to like the way he did it. He saved enough money to move out but still his mother called regularly and frequently showed up unannounced. He often had financial difficulties, which sometimes led him to move back into his mother's house. He even became briefly engaged in 1973 to another student, but it didn't last long. He was also hit by a car that year while riding a motorcycle. As part of the settlement, he bought a 1969 Ford Galaxy. Driving around, he began to notice a large number of women hitchhiking. It was then he started keeping items like plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. He then started to pick up female hitchhikers and letting them go, like he was testing the waters. He picked up many women before his sexual urges took hold and started acting on them. Ed killed eight people between 1972 and 1973. He would drive around looking for victims after he and his mother would get into volatile arguments. He picked up women that were hitchhiking and would drive them to remote areas where he stabbed, strangled, and shot his victims. He would take them back to his house, decapitate them, have sexual intercourses with their corpses, dismember them, and then discard them. His eight victims would be five college students, one high school student, his mother, and her best friend directly after the first two college students were murdered. While they were placed in the trunk of his car, he was stopped by the police for having a broken taillight. Their bodies were not discovered, leaving him to continue his 11-month murder spree. Talk about a missed moment, nearly catching a killer. The victims that were shot while being dismembered, he would then remove the bullets to avoid identification before discarding the bodies. After bludgeoning his mother's body with a claw hammer and slitting her throat with a kitchen knife on April 20th, 1973, he then proceeded to drink at a bar, invited his mother's best friend back to the house for dinner, and to watch a movie. He strangled her with the idea that he could create the illusion that the two best friends had gone on vacation together. Ultimately, he decided to leave her body in a closet with a note, leaving no disturbances outside the door, he left her intact with a note stating that it was due to a lack of time and that he had things to do. He fled to Pueblo, Colorado, believing himself being pursued in an active manhunt. 
He was armed with three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. When arriving in Pueblo and not hearing anything about the murders of his mother and her best friend, he called the police from a phone booth to confess. Not taking him seriously, they asked him to call back later. He calls back later, asked to speak with an officer he knows and confesses to the murders of his mother and her best friend. When taken into custody, he then admits to killing six students as well. He said the reason he turned himself in was due to the fact his original purpose was gone. On May 7, 1973, Ed was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. The chief public defender of Santa Cruz County was assigned to his case. Due to his very detailed confession, his only chance was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. In between his indictment and his trial on October 23, 1973, Ed attempted suicide twice. Three court-appointed psychiatrists would find him to be legally sane, one of which investigated his juvenile records, one report calling him psychotic. He also then interviewed Ed under truth serum where he admits to engaging in cannibalism with his victims, cooking strips of their leg flesh and cooking them in a casserole. He would later recant any claims to cannibalism. During the trial, the defense tried to make it seem like there were two beings inhabiting his body. One was the killer instinct personality that would take over, explaining that the other personality would black out. This, of course, was not believable to the jury. On November 8, 1973, it took a six-woman, six-man jury five hours to declare him sane. He asked for the death penalty death by torture. He instead received seven years to life, serving concurrently. He was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. There he was also in prison with another serial killer known as Charles Manson. He is considered a model prisoner. He scheduled other prisoners' appointments with psychologists. It was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He completed more than 5,000 hours narrating audiobooks. In 2015, he suffered a stroke and was diagnosed medically disabled. In 2016, after all this time, he was reported for his first rule violation, failure to provide a urine sample. During the years of his incarceration, he has been involved in many interviews. The most important insight was contributing to understanding the minds of serial killers. An FBI profiler once described him as bright and capable of giving a rare insight for violent crimes. To that I say, that's great. I have such mixed emotions about this. He obviously was a horrific sociopath that fooled, mm, well, everyone. Then we were supposed to respect this insight? That he has something to contribute? Yeah, right. Ed says that any interview he participated in was to help stop others from doing what he did. He said that he hoped that anyone maybe thinking about doing bad things would simply hear the consequences and not do those bad things. If there is rage, talk to someone about it. Enter the conspiracy corner.
What a joke. What a sociopathic thing to say. So easy to say. Don't do what I did. Doesn't matter if there was no clear motive. People won't understand, so not worth doing. After his second arrest, he would admit that understanding the test administered by the psychiatrist helped him not only to manipulate the psychiatrists themselves, but to learn from the sex offenders that he was trained to administer the test to. One example, he learned that it was always best to kill a woman after raping her to avoid a witness. Wow. I find it strange that his juvenile record was permanently expunged after he had manipulated his psychiatrist into thinking he was rehabilitated. Feels like an excuse. Seems to me the psychiatrist may have to take some responsibility for releasing him back into the world. Ed was first eligible for parole in 1979, then again in 1980, 1981, 1982. By 1985, he no longer cared waiving his right. Then in 1988, 1991, 1994, you get the picture. In 1997, in 2002, he waived his rights again. In 2007, he was again he would sneak out of the house and take his father's bayonet and stare at his teachers through the windows. His older sister would tease him about this, asking him why he never tried to kiss her. Ed simply replied, If I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. Talk about a warped sensibility towards women in general. My hope is that no one has to live in fear, ever. As always, I will never give up. And read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. Thanks to wikipedia.org. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rachel Vallisnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>